So this is a fun and unique weekend for my wife, Debbie, who's in the back there, and I. We uh, have had long periods of time in our life where we traveled together and long periods where we weren't able to travel together, and this has been one of the periods where we're sort of coming out of not traveling together and traveling some, so it's been great for her to be with uh, me and us to be together and to be with the table this weekend. Um, you've been kind of a legend in my mind, and it's been good to be here with the Tebbies and the Sternkeys and little groups of leaders here and there, and yesterday with the ordination of Spencer and now this morning, it's... Um, it's great for the table to be a real life face to me now and not just a, a legend in my, <laughs> in my mind. I, uh, I've said to Matt and Ben many times, uh, I say it behind your back, so I guess I should say it to your face, um, that I, I really genuinely appreciate what you guys are trying to do here. Um, I, I appreciate anybody who's trying to take Jesus serious and be his apprentice, and I know that that's the, the basic organizing uh, principle for you guys, so it's, it's great to be among you who are trying to do that. So our readings this morning alert us to the notion that Christian, conversa- or Christian, um, Christian confirmation is a wonderful way of living into, I want you to try to note these two words, relational reliance. Just as the Son had with the Father. So this thing of the times Jesus said, I only do the things that I see my Father doing. I only say the things that I hear my Father saying. Um, Think of Jesus uttering this sentence. The Son can do nothing other than what the Father does through Him. And I think, you know, we read over, those are all passages from John. We we read them over, I think, oftentimes without stopping to think to what was Jesus conscious when He said stuff like that. Like, is that just religious rhetoric or did He really mean the sort of life that I'm living is animated by the Father's work in me and through me? And what I want to say this morning is that confirmation is that is to impart to us by laying on of hands that same sort of life, where in the same way that Jesus had relational reliance on his Father, we're meant to have relational reliance on the Trinity, but through the Holy Spirit, as our readings this morning um, alerted us to. So let's stop and think for a few minutes just before we do that. What might such a spirit-animated life look like? Well, if you start with our reading in Luke 24, we get a narrative, narrative-based purpose for the sending of the Spirit. And that, that alerts us to the notion that the Holy Spirit is not, first and foremost, a denominational or consumer choice for those who are looking for, like, a little bit more. Like, I was raised in the Southern Baptist Church, and we had great preaching, but I'm just kind of looking for another dimension to my religious experience. Um, the Holy Spirit is not about turn-of-the-century Pentecostalism or what we might think of as the Assemblies of God or the Foursquare Church. And the Holy Spirit is not about the 1970s mainline, mainline renewal that happened to people like Lutherans and Methodists and Presbyterians and Episcopalians. Um, the Holy Spirit is kind of in, is included in all that but can't be reduced to it. What's really going on is Jesus says in our gospel reading... Everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then, so the narrative logic is, he says, thus, or for this to happen, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. So stay in the city until you're clothed, or the word really means equipped, equipped with power from on high. And then as we heard read in Acts, 
the narrative continues by saying Jesus gave instructions to the apostles through the Holy Spirit and spoke about the kingdom of God and said, wait for the gift of my, that my father promised, for John baptized with water, but, or in strong contrast, in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So I, I'm sometimes asked, I think I was just asked yesterday in some group I was with, you know, what's, what's kind of the values that undergird this diocese, this kind of missional, formational movement? And I would say the things that undergird us are the kinds of things that come from this passage. Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. I mean, that was kind of, if you want someday to just sit down with the Gospels and even into Acts, if you want to think about Paul and Peter, and just kind of read through and see what Jesus talked about, what he thought he was embodying in his manner of being, what he thought was happening. Like when he said things like, if you see demons being cast out, then you can know that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he said stuff like that, like what was going on in him? And so what gives us coherence, what there's, well, it, this is probably more aspirational than true at this point, but aspirationally, what gives us coherence is Jesus' gospel of the kingdom, the personal work of the Holy Spirit, mission, and the formation that makes any of those other three things possible. And I think this is all gathered up in, in this narrative as it unfolds. So in Acts 1-7, I kind of hear Jesus saying something like, you know, don't worry, this story is going to unfold. And it will happen through you receiving power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And then you will, you will indeed be my witnesses in, in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the, of the world. So given these readings and given the context this morning of confirmation, what can we say about the Holy Spirit? Well, the first thing to say, I think, is that he is obviously the third person of the Holy Trinity, but is often, I think, completely misunderstood. There are a lot of people who, because of religious experiences they've had, or maybe they've just been taught this, they consign him to history. And the kind of thought is that, that he was really important to the beginning of the church and the founding of the church, especially the gifts of the Spirit. They were important then, but not so much now. And there are other people who, when they think of the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> they kind of assign him as the source of weirdness that people think, quote, weirdness, in Pentecostal circles. I, I am not actually bashing Pentecostals. I don't bash anybody. But I just know the caricature, right? Like you can think of the caricature, that somebody grew up in a weird Pentecostal church or a weird charismatic church. I'm sure you've heard these stories. And I kinda, I'm kind of freaked out by it. And when I get around it, I kind of have a PTSD. And, you know, I'm just not sure. So this is what I beg of you to think this morning. How do we say either of those things to the third person of Almighty God? See, when the Spirit sits in our imagination as a, like a consumer choice, like, I just think I need a bit more of my spirituality. You know, kind of like maybe I've been wearing Levi's, but I kind of need some designer jeans maybe, you know, that just feel like my spiritual life, you know, needs a little uptick or something. Or if we think of it as a denominational choice, like, ah, I don't know, I kind of don't want to be Presbyterian anymore, you know, maybe I'll, or Lutheran or whatever, Anglican, you know, maybe I'll just sort of dabble in Pentecostalism. Like, how do you reduce Almighty God to an ism? I mean, can you see? I mean, I'm very patient with this. I get how people 
get there. I, I'm not mad at anybody. I get it. I'm just trying to give you a different perspective. I'm just trying to help you like shift away from that thinking to realize that we're talking literally about Almighty God. So I get that people worry about excess when it comes to the Holy Spirit. I get that in an age marked by Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and pretty soon 5G, that the sound of rushing wind and cloves of tongue and fire, like, what is that? Like, I get how that just is not very imaginative for us. It just, it almost doesn't communicate anything anymore. And I, and I have sincere, like I said, patience for that. Um, I understand that when some people lead, read the, the gift lists in Paul in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, I get how people read those things and just think, I don't know how those gifts are supposed to work. But even if you're there, you say you love Jesus, right? And you trust him? And you think he's smart? Well, then you're left with the upper room discourse where the, the person you say is your Lord said, it is better that I go away. So I always jokingly say, deal with it. <laughs> it's better that I go away. Why, Jesus? Because if I go away, the Holy Spirit will come. And the Spirit will be able to do to the global church what I've been doing with you, 12, or you, 120, right? Or as I've gone through villages, what you've seen me doing that's been particularly embodied in me will now be embodied in this global generation after generation after generation church all the way up to 2019. And so I just want to say, if you happen to be here this morning coming out of a background where you're just a little bit sort of cautiously open to the Spirit. I just want you to think with me, and I mean this totally playfully, that never do you see in the Gospels where Jesus said, blessed are you because of your honest cynicism, for it has made you well. <laughs> or blessed are you for your understandable suspicion, you know, for it has made you well. You just don't find that. What you find Jesus commending is faith, like in the centurion. Oh my gosh, Jesus says, even in Israel, I've never seen faith in like how this works. Like that centurion knew that if Jesus just spoke the word, like again, without Bluetooth, without Wi-Fi, how did Jesus's word get all the way to that guy's sick daughter and make her well? Actually, I don't know. It's above my pay grade. <laughs> but I just know that that kind of stuff is real. I mean, it's either real or we have to just you know, sort of take that modern scientific view of the New Testament and say, well, you know, old-fashioned people believe that, but us modern scientific post-enlightenment people, you know, we don't believe in that kind of stuff. You know, we believe in science. And there's a great why in the road of life there. And I think our, our, our texts this morning want to encourage us to think this thought, that the Holy Spirit is not just grieved by excesses that you might have seen, but the Holy Spirit is as easily grieved by being ignored. Either ignored by being consigned to history or consigned to the weirdness of other churches. Actually, the biblical sweep of the Spirit's work is awesome. You see the Spirit in creation. He supervises history. He reveals God's truth. Uh, Romans 5.5, 5, he, or, um, no, nah, I just went out of my head. He draws people to Jesus. That one just went out of my head. Uh, he teaches the way of Jesus. This is Romans 5.5. 5. He reveals the love of God to our hearts. 
So if you have ever felt the love of God in your heart, that was mediated to you, according to Paul, by the Spirit. And so the sweep of his work is awesome. Again, it, can't, it just can't be confined to a kind of Pentecostalism or charismaticness. It's the Spirit who gives power and authority. He gives equipping gifts. He gives transformation, you know, Galatians um, uh, 5, you know, through imparting to us, working in us the fruit of the Spirit. So now think about it. The, the church is disrespected in our culture more than it has been in anybody's living memory. And there's a sense in which the church feels kind of back on its heels. That's always the way. As a former athlete, that's the way I kind of think about it. Like, like I played mostly baseball, and you can't hit from your heels. It's just impossible. But you can't return serve on your heels. You can't play football on your heels. You can't do anything when you feel back on your heels. Well, how do you imagine standing in our culture with a sense of being authorized? From where would such authorization come? Not in social media, typically. You're not going to find a billboard out here anywhere that talks about how good the church is. From where are you going to have any sense of how you stand at work, at school, in your neighborhood, in your families? How are you going to do all that you do without the sense of, the, the, sorry, that you desire to do? How are you going to do that without feeling like I am authorized by the third person of the Holy Trinity to actually be the people of God on the earth? I have been given authoritative authority. And I've been given dunamis, I've been given power, such that we actually can make a, a gentle, humble, little by little, salt and light. We can, make, we can make a difference in the world. We can actually be God's people in the world. Well, that is never going to come from a socially construed sense, not in our day and time. Had we grown up in a little European village 600 years ago, where the church was the biggest, most, you know, you know the reason they built cathedrals the way they did? Was to, it was a way of trying to say, this stands. Like our crops, they come and go. Sometimes it rains enough, sometimes it doesn't. And, and our kids sometimes die of childhood diseases. You know, just think 600 years ago. But the church, what God is doing the, on the earth. You know, we either now poo-poo cathedrals or we go visit them. But when they were built, that was a village of people saying, the one thing we know is God. And he stands at the center of our social life in the sense of we are the people who have been given the power and the authority and the gifts to affect, we would say today, you know, to affect change. And we might think in terms of healing and social justice and those sorts of things. But, you know, the, the, and that's obviously great. But, you know, the biblical imagery are these modest little things of salt and light and, uh, and of um, yeast. Those are very modest metaphors. They're not the church, those aren't metaphors for the church rising above society and having some privileged position from which the church then could condescendingly speak down to culture. These are all things that arise from within, and we just stand in a very difficult time, and I'm just suggesting, you know, kind of just try it on for size, but I'm suggesting that we'll stand best in this time in which we stand in the gentle, loving, humble confidence that we are the people of the Spirit. And that that's by God's design. So J.I. Packer, not known as a leading Pentecostal for sure, um, said that the essence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit is that, that he is Jesus' deputy and representative agent in Christians' minds and hearts. That is to say, he mediates the personal presence and ministry of the Lord Jesus to us. 
So now thinking of that upper room discourse that I alluded to a minute ago, let's just, let me just read it to you. Jesus says, I will ask the Father to give you another helper. That's the Greek term paraclete. Nobody really agrees on how to um, adequately and accurately translate that word. It's been translated all sorts of different ways. My personal uh, preference is to translate it the continuator. So paraclete just, I mean, it literally means one called alongside you. But I think what Jesus is trying to say to his friends who are freaked out because he's just told them that he's going to go away, they're freaked out that they're going to be orphaned, and Jesus says, no, I'll send you the continuator, another helpful, he'll, another helper. He'll be with you forever, even the spirit of truth. He dwells with you and will be in you. Those, I don't have time to talk about those prepositions, but go home and sit with them someday. Just sit with the difference in those prepositions between the spirit being with you or being in you. So then Jesus directly addresses their fear by saying, I won't leave you as orphans. I'll come to you, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said. Now, again, I know that I am in a room full of sincere apprentices to Jesus, and therefore I want to say to you, the thing that you desire is mediated to you by the Spirit. In community, for sure. And, of course, involving word and table, for sure, undoubtedly. But what's underneath all that or in all that or superintends all that is the person and work of the Spirit. That's why Luke 24, the sending of the Spirit, is this major pivot point in the human story. I mean, why did Jesus say wait? Why wait? What did they have to wait for? They had already been discipled. They were already a mathetes, a student, an apprentice to a rabboni. They were already in what everybody thought to be the, the way that people became religious. How, like, what was the imagination that Jesus was living out of that something additional had to happen besides rabboni and mathetes? That classic way of learning to be Jewish as God intended the people of Israel to be. It would have been weird for them to have heard Jesus said, wait, like wait for what? What's the thing that we don't already have in the covenant of Abraham? Or what do, what do we not have that Moses didn't have? Like, what is it that we're waiting for here? And Jesus says, wait for the promise of the Spirit. Here's why. And um, I want to say, if you don't hear anything else I say this morning, I want you to hear this. Why wait? Because the purposes of God in followers of Jesus require a power that matched that intention. It is not God's purpose just that you go to heaven when you die. It is God's purpose that you be his people on the earth. That intention requires that each of us have a power that matches those intentions. I mean, we read it this morning. Psalm 8, what are humans? Well, paraphrasing, you're the cooperative friends of God. You're created to bring goodness of God, the goodness of God to the earth, which just raises the question, how? And the answer is through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what Acts 2 alerts us to is that Pentecost is meant to be seen as the moment when the personal presence of Jesus, now we're back to those prepositions, with the disciples is translated into the personal power of Jesus in the disciples. So that the Spirit then becomes the mode and means by which God is putting His power and authority into operation in His people as a new world is being born. That's the vision of Jesus. That is the thing to which He is conscious. Jesus knows that that He is the beginning of the end. 
And that sort of the next big explosion at the beginning of the end is God sending his spirit into what will be this global church of every tribe and nation and ethnicity and skin <coughs> color and language, that this is now going to be a, a, this enormous global thing. A new world is being born. That's what we read in, e in Ezekiel. And that in, as an aspect of that is human beings will be given a new heart to work alongside God via the Holy Spirit. And this is why I'm begging you to never see the Spirit as a denominational sort of experiential religious consumer choice. He is fundamental to everything we care about. And so this new world that Jesus sees being born is marked by the joy of the Spirit-filled life. It's marked by the animating, energizing, empowering, and gifting, and fruiting action of the Spirit loosed in the church and in each individual follower of Jesus. Jesus is picturing the disciples filled with the power of the Spirit, being commissioned and equipped to continue the work of Jesus in the world and the further inbreaking of the kingdom of God. So being filled with the Spirit is not an idea. It's, it's not an ideal or an idea. It's not a proposition or a bit of doctrine. It's not something that can be reduced to pneumatology as an aspect of systematic theology. Being filled with the Spirit is actually something you know by experience. So you may or may not have clarity on when somebody's filled with the Spirit. Like, is it conversion or is it later? And you might not be convinced about how it happens. Like, do you have to speak in tongues? I get that. I get anybody and everybody being confused about that. But we all should have clarity about this. Is your life inspired by the Spirit? That's not a bit of doctrine. That's a lived reality. Is my life inspired by the Spirit as promised by the Father and as taught by Jesus? Like, am I living a Spirit-inspired life? I love um, this story from Eugene Peterson's book, Eat This Book. Where he, uh, Peterson writes, everyone recognizes the difference between an accurate but wooden performance of, say, Mozart's violin concerto number one versus a virtuoso performance by Yitzhak Perlman. And Peterson goes on to say, Perlman's performance is not distinguished merely by his technical skill, merely that he can play in time or in meter or play in tune. So it's not just his technical t skill in reproducing what Mozart composed and put on paper. No, Perlman, Peterson says, wondrously enters into and conveys the spirit, the energy, the life of the score. That's the invitation. You confirmands and those being received and everybody listening to me this morning. That's the invitation of the spirit. That I would not just be sort of legalistically or, um, or sort of moralistically Christian and be able to accurately try to think right thoughts after the New Testament or sort of behave my way into something. No, the vision is that we would live into that score of the New Testament such that it inspires our life. And in the image of Jesus, then out of our bellies would come gushing torrents of living water. That's the vision here. And this is what church history is full of. John Wesley said, that his, when he received the Spirit, that his heart was strangely warmed versus what he thought of as a cool religion. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm over, oversimplifying here, but this cool religion that he'd known earlier. D.L. Moody, again, no famous Pentecostal, said that in his feeling, he had such an experience of God's love that he had to ask him to stop. R.A. Torrey, again, not at all thought of as a Pentecostal, said that after his filling, he had such a joy of life, such power in preaching, he saw new opportunities and new gifts. 
So I'm done with this. So how do we enter into this spirit-filled life I've been talking about? Well, one of my very favorite passages, it's become to me so paradigmatic, such a model of this, uh, John 20, where it says, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And the Greek term there for receive is take. And it means to receive or actively lay hold of. In some of the old translations, it said, be ye getting. It's the same word that Jesus used at the supper. Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. In the upper room, Jesus inhales and he exhales onto his first friends and says, take. In the same way that you come to Eucharist like this, come to the giving, the exhaling of Jesus with inhaling and opening yourself to the Spirit. And the, the, the lordship, the gifts, the fruit, the authority, the, the power of the Spirit, take it, receive it. One Greek dictionary says that this word take means to accept with initiative and that it emphasizes the will, the sort of the, the, the assertiveness of the receiver. And of course, we see this in Luke 11 when Jesus talks about ask and seek and knock. And if you remember, the last sentence of that passage on ask and seek and knock is this. If you know how to good give, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. So just before we have the candidates come in, sort of imaginatively, maybe evocatively, feel yourself taking, inhaling what Jesus is exhaling. Welcoming the Spirit. Receiving the Spirit, switching metaphors, catching the wind, letting the wind of the Spirit move you where it wills, leading you, I pray, to a childlike surrender. Amen.